Welcome to Bipolar Inquiry, drafting and crafting bipolar consciousness since 2016 by philosophizing, relanguaging, and harvesting mania's special messages, meaning visions, extraordinary experiences, ideas, insights, superpowers, possibilities, synchronicity, and parallel worlds. The Bipolar Inquiry podcast is not meant to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Information discussed on the show is not medical advice. Now, let's get started with this episode. nutritionals today and they gave me the go-ahead to decrease my medication by one-eighth so I'm on 12 point milligrams of trazodone and 150 milligrams of lithium and recommended that I take lipospheric vitamin C and it comes in a box of 30 1,000 milligram packets for 30 bucks and so I'm gonna try and order some of that on Amazon Prime because they said that it actually really helps with any side effects for coming off medication especially when it gets down to the lower doses so After this reduction of medication, I only have one more, and then I will be off the medication. So this is the period of time they said it's good to have the liposomal vitamin C on hand because it can help to mitigate any side effects. When the body is realizing that it's no longer going to have access to this medication, so I will order that and hopefully I will get it by Friday. So I'll have it on hand for these last 8 to 10 days of medication. And I'm feeling a bit anxious because I need somebody to order it for me on Amazon Prime. And they can't help me out right now. And I know it's getting down to the wire. And I really would like to have this on hand over the weekend if possible. And I slept pretty well. I think I'm not feeling as good today as the last few days though, for some reason. I feel really like I'm missing home today again. And I really don't know if I'm going to last another two months. That's a long time. And back to Joe Dispenza's Neuroscience Summit talk. He was talking about high frequency beta waves. And I wrote a note to myself that I think that those high frequency beta waves are actually words. And that's sort of the brain wavelength of cognition, which is just a bunch of words. So language is beta waves, and high beta waves is negative thoughts. And he said positive thoughts are mid to low beta range. So the beta in the prefrontal cortex is really the barrier between us being really in touch with reality. And when language goes away, there's energy because it's not blocked by the fast beta. And he said coherence consumes incoherence over time, if superimposed. And the brain hyper arouses itself with thought and tries to generate energy with thought, which is not based in reality. And this is instead of the energy generated by perception of reality. And most of us think of meditation as 
paying attention to the brain or paying attention to our thoughts and maybe trying to control our thoughts when really it's actually the brain paying attention attention to the moment and that doesn't necessarily require sitting down quietly and Joe said something about getting people to believe how unlimited they are as part of what he does or something and when we go into that state of mania we definitely feel how unlimited we are it's not just a belief but it's an actual experience but then the medical profession comes in and says that's not true and medicates it away and I feel like the higher vibrations that we can access are limited by the high beta waves or any of the beta waves and that's the energy that goes offline when this other energy comes in and animates us and he touched on gamma waves and how it was something about there's more waves and more light and more information and gamma waves are 25 to 100 Hertz with it typically being around 40 Hertz and he said they may be implicated in creating the unity of conscious perception the binding problem and he talked about the formation of ideas linguistic processing which I think is what I've talked about related to language creation and he also said there's various types of learning involved in gamma waves and I've said this is a hyper learning state when we go into math consciousness and it's associated with bursts of insight compassion and high level of information processing and inspiration and then it was interesting I remember him saying but I'm not going to go into that and then he focused more on the beta waves and how to maybe meditate to change the beta waves when I feel like if the gamma waves come in they naturally deal with and put the beta waves in their right place so it was interesting that he didn't want to go to that level um, maybe it's just time constraints but I feel like a lot of what is out there that's supposed to be helpful is based on that level of cognition and beta waves and the me and all that when if we had that gamma waves that unity of conscious perception maybe that would erase the other problems but when we're operating from beta and trying to fix beta from beta it's like a vicious loop that we can never get out of and I think so-called mania and math consciousness is related to gamma and it's just that our brains aren't used to operating with gamma waves and those gamma waves come in and they're reorganizing the brain and that could actually be the energy that's reorganizing and restructuring the brain in order for the brain to be able to operate with those frequencies but they're sort of new frequencies that we're accessing again it's seeing and walking in a different world it could just be a matter of these gamma waves that could be everywhere ever present that our brains just don't really have the brain cells to access it's like having a radio station that's not in the range of the radio dial you wouldn't be able to access it and I wonder if general semantics or English prime or E prime can help to release some of this beta energy block the beta energy is blocking the gamma energy and it's a way of speaking that avoids the verb to be so instead of saying this is that you say this seems to be that 
at this moment. So it's interesting to look it up and I think it would help a little bit to utilize that to some extent. Because as soon as we say this is that, most of the time it no longer is that or never was that to begin with. But if we approach it with some apprehension and some tentativeness in our observations, then it's less something. So what is the intelligent use of language? Or how does intelligence use language? Are these gamma brain waves related more to intelligence and what kind of language does that produce? Not just in words, but in actions. Does intelligence use language to create more language? And does intelligence only use language in the moment where necessary, related to the moment? And in this way, the brain is not being constantly activated in the domain of memory and using memory to interpret and translate the present moment. The brain becomes intelligent when it is quiet and only moves when necessary, only produces sound when necessary. Then one's compass is the subtle sounds and perceptions of the moment of intelligence. And if there's silence in the brain and heart, what is the electromagnetic field? And there's no high beta to block the heart's energy and information from going up to the brain. And using thought to meet the moment, thought and emotion, creates the matter in the prefrontal cortex. But perception creates the brain as a fluid liquid crystal. And even though perception and action that movement of perception and action in the moment puts us out of sync with society and with the people and the world. Eventually, we all sync back up. So there was this thing that they showed where they show metronomes out of sync, but eventually they all sync up and move in the same way. They're all going in different times like this. And then eventually, they're all going at the same, like this, even though they're made exactly the same way and have the same physical properties. There's something that moves these like objects into this syncing up and this coherence. So even if we go into this perception action state, high energy state, and are out of sync with society, eventually we all sync up. And that could be actually what brings us back down into the level of society and as it is right now but they sink to us ever so slightly just like we're sinking back down back to the rate of vibration of that level so each time we pop up and and learn and our brains go into that state we're still causing a different synchronization however small it may be but the more that we can understand those states not just go into them, but understand them and learn from them. Because I can't remember what interview I was listening to, but they were saying that human beings are designed to learn. That's our main thing. We're always learning and we learn through our entire life. It's kind of like we're human learnings. So the more we go up and learn in that state, that can get passed on if we're learning something. 
we go up to that say we don't learn anything, then it doesn't really do very much. And I wrote down, when we feel we are missing something, when we go through life like that, we're actually missing something. We're missing the moment. And thought, in a way, is like internal marketing. It's how we pay with our energy, because that's what we pay attention to. We pay attention to our thought, and we pay attention with our thought. So there's this element that's paying some energy of attention to the thoughts in our head. And our thoughts in our head are what are directing our attention to some level out in the external. So it's kind of a double whammy. Desire is a movement away from the present moment as we feel like we are missing something. And what we are missing is the present moment. Let perception drive you. And gratitude is appreciation. And what we pay attention to appreciates. It grows. And so anything we pay attention to is what we're grateful for, whether it's good or bad, or whether we're actually saying that we're grateful. Because we're actually appreciating that. We're, we're always in gratitude. We're always appreciating something. And usually that's the thoughts in our head. We're growing that. And I've lately been paying more attention to what it is I will miss in California. The beauty, the peace, and allowing that to write on my brain instead of the things that maybe aren't feeling helpful for me right now. And in a way, perception is making note of things instead of desiring things. And people that live in poverty are often really happy, and that's because they don't have all these thoughts that are just marketing installed in their brain. A lot of our thoughts are around marketing and, and economy and, and buying and things and having, and, and this is what the conflict is a lot of times. So a lot of our thoughts are marketing. They're things that have been marketed to us and we've bought them, even if we haven't yet bought them and we're thinking about them. Even education is part of this marketing because we get educated so we can get stuff and, and buy into all these things that we're being sold. And if we think we're lacking something, we're right. It means we're lacking the present moment. In silence, waiting, in the unknown, there can be synchronicity as one waits for the signal instead of chopping up the signals of the moment. One of our visual field is filled in by the brain, by pattern recognition. And I feel like a lot of this could be the beta wave chatter. But that beta wave chatter could re be replaced with beauty. And then we're living in a completely different world. And I made a note of the term negative capability. And according to Wiki, it was a phrase first used by Roman poet John Keats in 1817 to characterize the capacity of the greatest writers, particularly Shakespeare, to pursue a vision of artistic beauty even when it leads them into intellectual confusion and uncertainty, as opposed to a preference for philosophical certainty over artistic beauty. The term has been used by poets and philosophers to describe the ability of the individual to perceive, think, and operate beyond any presupposition of a predetermined capacity of the human being. 
And to me, this sounds a lot like the territory that we enter when we go into map consciousness. And the term negative capability is further expanded on a website, keatsian.co.uk, and it says the concept of negative capability is the ability to contemplate the world without the desire to try and reconcile contradictory aspects or fit it into a closed and rational system. So in a way, this map consciousness could actually get the brain in touch with this negative capability. And there's a quote by Keats saying, At once it struck me what quality went to form a man of achievement, especially in literature, and which Shakespeare possessed so enormously. I mean negative capability. That is when man is capable of being in uncertainties, mysteries, doubts, without any irritable reaching after fact and reason. So it seems in a way the brain goes into this state of accessing its negative capabilities when in map consciousness. There's mysteries, there's doubts, we wonder, we're in awe, and the brain is in that state the whole time. And it's just these negative capabilities that the brain can have, but our brain and how we are raised sort of forces us into all these positive capabilities of rationality and reason. And later on the page it says, in this sense, negative capability is a sublime expression of supreme empathy. And empathy is the capacity for participating in experiencing and understanding another's feelings or ideas. It is a creative tool to help us understand each other, understand different points of view or different cultures, so that we might be able to express them. And I feel like going into map consciousness is just that, going into supreme empathy. And it could be actually the brain's need for it to understand each other. So normally how we operate with thought, we're in conflict with ourselves and other people. But when it goes into this empathy state, it's really learning and it's really trying to understand these relationships that we have and that we're in, that we're immersed in. And we feel ourselves as that relationship. We don't feel ourselves as we usually would in ego consciousness and so this is from a website Keats Kingdom and I don't know much about Keats but it's interesting that it's called a negative capability and Krishnamurti often says that we need to approach things negatively and maybe map consciousness is the brain approaching things negatively not I'm approaching things negatively but the brain is actually in a negative state and he might actually say that, that the brain needs to be in a negative state. So when we perceive based on light, we have all the information in our visual field versus based on thought, which narrows our visual field down to a sound bite. And the brain works on abstraction and association, but it can transition into perception and action. And I wonder how I could design my life to live based on perception and action. 
and that empathy embodied altruism. And really that would just be systematically getting rid of all the things that aren't that. I wouldn't actually be able to design it. It would only be editing other things out and allowing that energy to occupy that space. And that's kind of what happens in map consciousness and mania. It edits everything else out and one is living a completely different life because the brain has negated all else in favor of being with the moment. Until next time, let possibility act through you. I had a really good sleep tonight and I'm feeling good today, except I was feeling a little bit like, what do I do with myself? And interestingly enough, I just spent some time organizing my audio video playlist to YouTube kept them unlisted, and then used an application called YouTube to MP3 to extract just the audios from the videos, and I paid $10 for a year to get the faster speed download of that because I have about 270 videos, but I was doing just a few of them, just the ones since I left for California. So maybe about 80 videos. And then I bought six months of the browser-based application called Tunes to Tube, which takes any audio you have and then adds just a picture and has one picture the whole time. So it's a way to upload audios without having to add actual video to them. And it's a lot faster. So that way I have a video version of my videos on YouTube and then an audio only. And I'm thinking that I might release the audio version first and see if there's any kind of response before I put the videos out there. Um, I don't know. It doesn't really matter. I'm just sort of having both as an option. And then I have the audios in different playlists month by month. So I organized those and make sure that there were no missing videos and there were a couple. So I had to extract those audios and make them into tunes to two videos. So that's organized. And then I'll probably just put maybe one ad at the beginning of each video since they're really long videos. So to watch a really long video and have to watch a few seconds of one ad is not that big of a deal and then maybe at some point I'll just take that off but it could just be an experiment to see if it's even worth having it on there at all and it's something I could take off really quickly and I made the mistake of leaving this setting on YouTube capture when I uploaded my videos through the YouTube capture app from my phone and it corrects the stabilization and the color. And that's kind of good when, when the video is actually moving, but a lot of my videos, most of them, especially the ones in the beginning, I'm just sitting there and the phone is stationary, the camera is stationary. So I'm going to go through and try to remove those enhancements. It just takes a while to click on like 200 videos and do that. But they look a little bit dumb when 
my head stays still and the background's kind of warping. So I'll probably take the time to do that since I have some time. And my iPhone gave me the warning that after the next update, YouTube capture won't work anymore. So I need to keep that in mind because if it doesn't work, the iPhone will only upload videos to YouTube of 15 minutes in length, as far as I know. So from now on, perhaps I should keep my videos to under 15 minutes and just use the iPhone photo app to send them to YouTube. And all the audios that I extracted aren't really in proper order. Before I left for California, I downloaded a backup of all my videos and I put the video number in front of it. So I might do that with the audios and keep it organized because at some point I might upload them to SoundCloud as well. Because I figured out how to have my SoundCloud channel as something listed in iTunes too. And this is just kind of fun to figure out. It's not like I'm doing all this because I want it to be this big thing. It's more using this content that I've created to explore different ways of sharing it on different platforms. So in a way it could be a way to see what works best. And I was watching Steve Pavlina's videos and he did 30 days of videos and 30 day water fast. And he only got about one to 2,000 views a video in a short while, which is good, but he talks about how videoing really isn't that much of his medium. Blogging really is, and maybe video will be more so over time for him, but I've found that video is something that I've been able to keep up and it's been in alignment with my brain. So just being able to create the content, which isn't even content, it's just a conversation with myself, and then find ways to share that conversation and put it out there in a bunch of different ways. Um, a lot of the purpose of doing videos too is to make it accessible. I know from back in the day when I was just indoctrinated into the mental health paradigm, I could barely see straight when I was on all those medications. And even when I started to be able to see straight after a while, because I adapted to the meds, I didn't feel like reading or or learning in, in that way. So I think this might help to share something with people like me who are in the earlier stages when they haven't really started to question as much or want to question or have the little semblance of clarity to be able to even question, even if behind all the fog there's some sense of wanting to question things or think about things differently, sometimes it's just hard, especially with society pressures and family pressures and all the changes that happen in life after being diagnosed and having everything change and all one's worldviews flush down the toilet and being given this new unhopeful worldview of life. So that's kind of the point because I've read some amazing books, but it took me three and a half years to get to the point where I could even start reading books. And it would be nice if some of the information was a little bit more accessible. So audio and video, really easy to watch 
on a phone or in an app or so many different things and a lot easier than reading for for some people at least that's that was my experience and maybe when I go home it would be cool to talk about some of the cool stuff that other people talk about and get it in video format as well because it's just easier to follow I think and partly maybe we would even start responding to each other via videos and everyone who wants to make videos of themselves talking on about stuff because with bipolar we have a lot to say but there's not enough people to listen or who want to listen or if there are people who want to listen they might be somewhere on the other side of the world so this is a way to um, to do that so that's why I want to explore different ways of sharing and also it's kind of cool that my brain seems to be focusing a little bit more like I just sat down at my computer and started working on this I didn't think oh today I have on my to-do list I need to do this but I just sat down and started doing it and I got some stuff done and then I also saw some things I could do next so all the audios I extracted from the YouTube videos from when I got to California in mid-February until now I need to use tunes to tube to put those in YouTube and then create playlists and from there um, also work on the videos and getting those enhancements out and then I need to add tags and some kind of description and maybe listen to some of it to see if I need to add what the heck I'm talking about I don't know um, that could take a long time so we'll see what happens I really am not good at finding the words to describe what it's all about but I think that'll be more clear when I do or do not end up coming off meds and one of my friends is coming to visit me next weekend and she is one of the people that's on my list of people who agreed to come save me and rescue me in California if something were to go awry and so it feels kind of weird that she's coming to visit me almost like will I fail at coming off meds because she's coming and is it really the universe organizing itself around her coming to get me to bring me back home because something's gonna go wrong is it like a, a premonition in terms of somebody coming here to see me so it feels a little bit like I don't know it feels like I will take my last dose of medication on Thursday night next week so I'll be kind of medicated on Friday still for sure but my friend arrives Friday night and so Saturday and Sunday I won't be taking any meds for the first two days and she'll be here so it'll be like my old world at home coming and meeting this new world in California and wanting to be like yay celebrating being off meds yet feeling almost a little bit like guilty like I did something wrong and I have something to hide because nobody knows that I'm doing this except for maybe one or two people who don't know me from the past so 
and then another one of my friends is coming to visit the week after or the week after that or something and she's the other person that was on my list of people to come and rescue me so it's almost like right after I come off my meds there's two opportunities for my friends to rescue me from here but they're just coming to see me but it feels energetically strange I don't know like I wonder if something will be created subconsciously and get messed up. I feel like I should just like take it easy after I finish coming off meds, but I feel like I need to play it cool when my friend arrives and, and not be like, I just came off meds or I don't know. It just feels strange. And I got the vitamin C, the lipospheric vitamin C in the mail today. I got the notification, but I don't have it in my hand right now. It's still in, in the mailbox, I think. And it comes in packets, and Hardy Nutritional said take it if you have withdrawal effects. But I might take one today because I just went down in my dose one-eighth last night. And that was the first night of that. I slept really well. I'm feeling more calm, and I'm feeling sort of serene inside. And I fell asleep just feeling more focused today, being able to do some of this stuff. If I go back home and I've gotten all this stuff that I've created organized, then that's a good thing. If I'm also in good physical shape and I'm starting to eat healthy again, that's an extra good thing. But having this stuff organized would be awesome to doing this for the last year. So... It'll be a milestone when I come off the meds next Friday, and then it'll be a one-year milestone when June 20th hits. That'll be the one year of doing this. So if by the one-year point, I have it all somewhat organized, then at that point I can decide if I want to keep doing so many self-dialogue videos or just do an update here and there. And I've noticed with most of my self-dialogue the last while, the last week or two it's kind of like blah 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 because I made these notes maybe a month or two ago probably two so there's not that much energy behind it but I'm just going through it anyway to feel kind of complete if I finish this notebook I'll feel sort of complete with it so if I do that by June 20th and I'm organized by June 20th that will be a time to reevaluate what I want to do with this and how I want to do the videos going forward and if I want to do them. I might do updates based on being off meds. And then when I'm at home, I really do want to live what I've been saying. And I thought I'd be living what I'm saying in California. But not having access to a vehicle for most of the time. And then also just laying low to come off the meds. Using the peace and quiet and being away from everyone and everything as an opportunity to come off the meds instead of an opportunity to embody what I've been saying to myself. And I think it could be more powerful when I get home, if I'm off the meds, to then embody what I've been saying to myself as someone not on medication. And that to me sounds cool and that's what I hope the window from June 20th to September 11th can be and then after that I might just stop or I don't know 
and watching Steve Pavlina's video talking about that book, The One Thing, really made me realize that this has been my one thing. And so this last month window that I have, I want to use that time to focus on really understanding, well, this has been my one thing. So get it organized and and wrap it up and then decide if there's going to be a different one thing in the next year. And how things go with this medication withdrawal will definitely play a big part of that. And I'm going to stop now because I'm at 17 minutes and 45 seconds, 46, 47, 48. And when I edit it, I'll probably be at 15 minutes. And I should do that because of the whole upload thingamajiggy. Mm. I don't know if I want to get that good done. It's kind of a cold day here and I'm feeling kind of blah. So why not just talk to myself? And I was thinking about the question, what do I have to do to create that future? And the future, in a way, is the past because I feel like I went into this future possible world in so-called mania. And it's a world that's here now, but will possibly be made manifest in the future. So what do I need to do to create that future that I saw in the past? It's a non-linear thing. And I was thinking more about this linguistic relativity. How if I'm a native English speaker, if my brain could all of a sudden be in touch with being a native Spanish speaker, I would experience the world in a completely different way. Or I wonder if it works that way if people learn a second language almost as good as their first. But I'm wondering if this transformation into brain states where one feels like they're experiencing mania is a type of brain relativity. If we have different relative brain states that are relative to each other, in a way we have a relative of ourself so most of us have relatives or had relatives, at least a mother and a father, but maybe we have these relatives of ourselves, different brain states, and we're still the same physical organism, but we're just a different version of ourself or a different expression or a different composition. And I'm not talking about things like multiple personalities. It could be more like multiple positionalities or superpositions of the brain. So maybe I'm not bipolar, I'm bilingual. Or I just have multiple brain states. Because bipolar is a word to describe an illness 
and I thought of a good phrase. I'm not confused or delusional or hallucinating. I'm nonlinear. So I'm back to some stuff on David Bohm in my notes. And I'm reading the book Wholeness in the Implicate Order. So I want to quote a few things that he said to myself. Because they relate to what I talk about with myself. He says in chapter 2, Clearly, the act of apprehending relevance or irrelevance cannot be reduced to a technique or method determined by some set of rules. Rather, this is an art, both in the sense of requiring creative perception and that perception has to develop further into a kind of skill. I think I need to read that part differently at the end. The sense of requiring creative perception and that perception has to develop further into a kind of skill. So having creative perception and also having that creative perception develop into a kind of skill. So right now we're very skilled at thought, so much that it just happens automatically. But we can have creative perception, and I think that happens in map consciousness. But unless we become skilled at it, we're being directed by something that we don't understand because we act based on our perceptions. So we're introduced to a brain state of creative perception, but it has to develop into a skill. So that's why I quoted that by David Bohm. And for me, it's kind of the art of perception, which is related to apprehending that which is life-affirming. And that alienates us from society because society is not based on that which is life-affirming. And when David Bohm says in the beginning, that clearly the act of apprehending relevance or irrelevance cannot be reduced to a technique or method or determined by some set of rules. Well, the thoughts in our head are often the rules of society and the rules of morality. I should do this, I shouldn't do that. So we're trying to figure out what's relevant or irrelevant based on our thoughts, which is like a set of rules. And so I wrote down, mania changes the algorithm of apprehension of relevance or irrelevance, thus changes our values. It changes it towards life-affirming things and sharing, even though it doesn't seem like that sometimes. And it also changes our language too. A lot of us become very poetic and metaphoric. And the thing with mania too is it's not like we have a new set of thought structures by which to operate. We're perceiving in the moment, it's creative, it's always changing, it's always new, it's rich. And can we turn that into a skill? Can we be skillful at that? Can we be skillful in our rich perceptions and our diversity of experiences instead of just trying to narrow that field back to this narrow societal structure. So that's why I liked that quote too, is because it made me think that mania changes the algorithm of what is relevant and what is irrelevant to us. And a lot of the trouble with when people say, oh, you've changed or something's wrong with you, it's that all of a sudden we think a lot of what we used to think was relevant is now irrelevant. And so we're acting differently and we're thinking these 
other things are relevant, which could be changing and it seems chaotic. But chaos is required for the next level of order to come into operation. There's always chaos first. And I wrote down that mania is the mutation. And mutations aren't always selected for. So the universe initiating this process of map consciousness isn't working to transform the human brain because it's being diverted into a medical problem and not seen as transformation, not just for the person, but when the person gets through it, they help to transform people that have yet to transform and maybe lessen the suffering that's involved in going through the process. So I feel like that's why the human brain is having trouble in the younger generation now because this mutation that happens in, say, late teens, early 20s through this transconscious process is being captured and is not being allowed to flower into what the meaning and purpose of it is. So now it's trying to get to the brains earlier in life. And I feel like if people with labels of mental illness can transform and be healed, that will have a ripple effect that will actually affect, say, perhaps the rates of other conditions. For example, maybe autism. And that's just a little weird hypothesis. It's more of an evolutionary hypothesis of consciousness. I'm not saying it's true. I'm not saying it could be proven. But I can just sense that it could be possible because the brain is trying to transform. And what is trying to transform out of that structure is recapturing that energy and not facilitating the brain to transform and, and mutate as it's trying to do. So the evolution of consciousness is trying a different method. And it's sad because it's doing it to the young, innocent children. And we're all young, innocent children inside. So it doesn't really matter what age this kind of thing happens. Something, something happens to the brain. Something is happening to the human brain. Not, oh, I'm the only one going through this and there's some people going through that. No, it's happening to the human brain in general. And I just got an email about a book called iMinds talking about how technology is changing the human brain. Everything changes the human brain. So which way should it be changing? I've probably only said the word should in all of my talking to myself once or twice, both in this video. And I made a note to read a bit from the top of page 34. And... He's talking about relevance and irrelevance, and it can't be a form of accumulated knowledge of properties belonging to statements, so it's not a fixed thing. Rather, in each case, the statement of relevance or irrelevance is communicating a perception taking place at the moment of expression, and is the individual context indicated in that moment. So when the context changes, the statement is irrelevant. So in this way, every single thing I have said up to this point is now irrelevant. 
So I'm not trying to actually make relevant statements. It's just talking according to a certain context. And then even if it is relevant or irrelevant, it doesn't cover all possibilities. So this means that one has to learn more. So it's about learning, creating context, making statements in a certain context and learning from that because it can never cover all possibilities. And that's why I say that self-dialogue is never ending. And he says, so when relevance or irrelevance is communicated, one has to understand that this is not a hard and fast division between opposing categories, but rather an expression of an ever-changing perception. So to me, mania is an expression of an ever-changing perception. And that can only happen when the ego structures have been suspended. Because otherwise, the perceptions are only changing slightly according to the thought structures. And they're not really changing because we're thinking the same thoughts all the time. So self-dialogue is a flux. And on the top of 47, he says, The noun vidation means an unrestricted and generalized totality of acts of perception. And if you've listened to my conversation with myself, you'll just know why I like that sentence. And on 39, he says, Beyond all these orders is that of the movement of attention. This movement has to have an order that fits the order in that which is to be observed, or else we will miss seeing what is to be seen. And to me, when we have our brain operating on the order of thought, it's thinking about something yesterday or, or the future, and it's not really seeing what is there to be seen. And I think what happens in so-called mania is we actually start seeing what's there to be seen, and it's a different experience altogether. For example, if we try to listen to a symphony while our attention is directed mainly to a sequential time order as indicated by a clock, we will fail to listen to the subtle orders that constitute the essential meaning of the music. And that's what's happening. We're listening to our ego clock tick along, and we're not able to see and hear the symphony of the universe. And so in mania, we get connected with the symphony of the universe, and we can see and hear the subtle orders that constitute the essential meaning of the universe. So I'm just creating equivalent sentences here. Evidently, our ability to perceive and understand is limited by the freedom with which the ordering of attention can change, so as to fit the order that is to be observed. And I think that's what's happening in map consciousness. Our brain is starting to become free to change attention to fit the order being observed, not just observing our thoughts, or not even observing them, but being totally absorbed in them. So can we know when we're around beauty? And can we know when we're being surrounded by thought? And David Bohm talks about the unrestricted flow of meaning. And that's what I'm doing with the self-dialogue, is not restricting the meanings and the flow of meanings that are being created 
through me. And I feel like through the brains of people who go into mania, there really is an unrestricted flow of meaning. Maybe it only makes sense in the context of the actual person saying it and what they're perceiving in that moment. But it's not actually correct to anyone else. But it's still an unrestricted flow of meaning. Even if a lot of it is wrong in the height of that process, to the person experiencing it, it actually feels really meaningful. So even if one has a thought or says something that is completely out there, it will have this sense, this feeling of meaning. Whereas a lot of times our thoughts just drone on and feel pretty meaningless. And some of them feel meaningful, but usually in bad ways. And then... I forget. And that language is an order of sounds, words, structures of words, nuances of phrase and gesture. So if that's what language is, he says language is gesture. Language is sounds, words. That's why I really feel that when the brain goes into that state of mania or map consciousness, it's getting in touch with a completely different language and not just as words. And it's still English, but it's still a different language. It's a different dialect. And I think I said that before. We speak a different dialect of English. So mania is a different language order that reorders language. It reorders the brain and the language of the brain and how the brain operates. And it changes our gestures. It changes our nuances. It changes how we use words. It changes how we speak the words. So when he says that that's what language is, so it's a different language order. And he says, something, 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 we can develop rules of grammar and syntax that use this order in a systematic way to enrich and enhance the possibilities of the language for communication and for thinking. And he says, we can do that. I think that's what the energy of mania is doing. Not that we even need to try to do it, but there's this evolutionary force doing that. And if we understood it in that way or some other way than it's now being understood, we might actually be able to harvest that energy and maybe even harvest it better because I've sort of thought of it as if somebody's kind of like in that state, help them harvest their state. But if we can facilitate that person to actually... move through that energy in the way that that energy wants then it might actually be more fruitful if we knew what it was trying to do we wouldn't just sit there and watch someone in that state we might actually facilitate that happening and it's similar to what Krishnamurti says that truth has to be seen moment to moment and therefore, truth is in perception. It's in seeing. So it's a simultaneous movement of perception, attention, and action. And I wrote down that mania makes many facts liable to collapse. And based on what I just read by David Bohm, so-called facts are kind of contextual and they collapse in different contexts. So perhaps map consciousness is a context that collapses a lot of things that we see as facts from the level of thought, but are evidently non-facts from this other level of map consciousness. 
And one last bit from David Bohm on 46, he says, Indeed, as has already been brought out to some extent, every language form carries a kind of dominant or prevailing worldview, which tends to function in our thinking and in our perception whenever it is used, so that to give a clear expression of a worldview contrary to the one implied in the primary structure of language is usually very difficult. So I feel like map consciousness is a different language that is different than the primary structure implied in the English language. So there's the English language and that worldview, and then there's map consciousness which comes in and changes the way one might use the English language and the worldview seen through the English language. And this part's important too. As indicated earlier, one of the major defects of the ordinary mode of using language is just its general implication that it is not restricting the worldview in any way at all. The ordinary mode of language leads us to fail to give attention to the actual function of the divisive worldview that pervades this mode, so that the automatic and habitual operation of our thought and language is then able to project these divisions as if they were actual fragmentary breaks in the nature of what is. And why that's important to me is because I feel like when we get in touch with the language of map consciousness, we see that there are no fragmentary breaks on the nature of what is that have been created by the structure of our language. So we move beyond those fragmentary breaks and it could be that perhaps we're using it in a relational way or trying to use it in different ways. There's probably no real defined way. And also when we go into map consciousness and mania, we realize very quickly, it's very obvious that we've had a restricted worldview and we have access to maybe infinite worldviews as the moment changes and as we move through life. So when we're lost in the language structures and mesmerized by that, we don't actually realize that our worldview is being limited. So our language, in a way, is a worldview limiter, and it limits our sensitivity, it limits a lot of things. So this book, Wholeness in the Implicate Order, I've given a few snippets, not with the intention of infringing any copyright, but by quoting as part of this self-dialogue research. And I love David Bohm. He was a genius for sure. One more. We see that the mere act of seriously considering such a new mode of language and observing how it works can help draw our attention to the way in which our ordinary language structure puts strong and subtle pressures on us to hold our fragmentary worldview. And I feel like in map consciousness, we're not just seriously considering a new mode of language, we're living a new mode of language. And we can also see some of the old modes of language and what that does. And when we're in map consciousness, a lot of the times we have a unitive worldview and we see the connections of all things. So we're seeing through that language of interconnectivity and unity and speaking as that. And when we get upset, it's usually because we're seeing 
the old language and what it's doing and reacting to it and usually using strong language about that, but it doesn't even come across in a communicable way that people would really receive because we sense it so strongly and we react so, so I want to say passionately. So that's it for David Bohm for a little bit. There's probably more notes of him somewhere, but I will continue this later. I don't know if that reading to myself is boring, but if I ever go through and watch my videos, then I'll get to hear those quotes. So it's for me first and foremost, because I don't ever want to go through these notebooks again, but I might actually watch some of my videos at some point. It's just translating what I find interesting and the things that I say into video format. So it's reformatting. So yesterday I got the lipospheric vitamin C. Comes in a package of 30 packets. And it's goo that you have to squeeze out. And I didn't take any yesterday because I had just eaten when I got the box. And it said, have on an empty stomach and then wait at least 15 minutes before having any food. So I figured I would wait until today. And last night, it took me longer to fall asleep. And when I was falling asleep, I had that sort of jolt thing happened two times and it wasn't accompanied with the fear and the panic and the real electric shock feeling but it was just a jolt and it reminds me of how it can turn into something more scary so that's the first experience like that I've had in a while and it's just scarier being on the lower dosages of these medications and that's why Hardy Nutritionals recommended this vitamin C product so this morning I took a packet before our breakfast and then I just had one for before lunch and I'm wondering if there will be any changes tonight if I will fall asleep without any trouble that's the hope it's lipospheric vitamin C. So the vitamin C is in a phospholipid bilayer. And that makes it way more bioavailable. And it says supports a healthy immune system and optimal overall health. Helps protect cells from the damage caused by harmful free radicals. Promotes muscle repair and recovery and the best one of all, increases skin firmness and reduces fine lines and wrinkles in as little as four weeks. Two people recently have thought I was in my early 20s and I'm in my mid-30s, so maybe I will look even younger after taking this. So at two packets a day, I'm gonna run out of this pretty quick. 
So I will likely order this again in a week if I'm finding that it's helpful. I don't know if I need to take it beyond the tapering off period. I could ask them about that when I call them on Monday. But the good thing about the sleep thing right now is that even though I'm getting less sleep, I'm waking up before my alarm. I woke up at about 6.40 this morning and I probably didn't fall asleep till about 11. I'm still feeling pretty alert and rested. So before, if I didn't fall asleep, it would be a big deal. And then I would take something to fall asleep, but the trouble is the drug would make me sleepier and sleep longer. So I would wake up feeling like I needed more sleep when it could have just been the meds. So now that I'm on not such of a high dose, I'm feeling less drugged and I'm feeling more like eight hours of sleep is enough and I don't need 10 to 12 hours every single night, which is nice. I really like that. And I took a little video of making my juice this morning. So here's the lipospheric vitamin C. It says enjoy it in an ounce to three ounces of cold juice and that it will not dissolve. And it's kind of a liquid. Well, it is a liquid. So that's about enough because it says to swallow it in one go. Too much juice for one gulp. That's quite nice. And also says wait at least 15 minutes before eating. So that's easy enough to do. And I'm not sure about working on stuff, if that's a good idea, or if I should just be resting and relaxing. I do feel antsy just to go home, and that's a little bit distracting. And I'm wondering if part of that is a premonition, like I should go home? Like is my subconscious mind making me really miss home because I should go home because something could happen? I really am playing with fire by staying down here while I'm tapering off, especially this last little bit. I did try to taper off meds two years ago, and I did it really, really slowly over a period of about seven months. And I even went really slow on the lithium taper, about 20 milligrams each time, and I actually opened the capsules and weighed out different dosages to really slowly do it, to hopefully be successful. And I was off my medications for about three weeks, and after the three weeks, I went into a, a psychosis and I was in it for three days and then I ended up in the hospital. And then ever since then, 
I've been in and out of the hospital. I was in the hospital that time for about eight to ten days and then I was out for six to eight months, back in for eight to ten days, out for six to eight and a half months, and then back in and then that was a bad time which I was in there for about 33 days and since then I've been really trying to avoid it. So before I was hospitalized that time I had been out of the hospital for about eight months then I was re-hospitalized and I was thinking about how at eight and a half months, I had another episode of all the scary stuff. And I was thinking about how I maxed out at eight and a half months between events of psychosis, as it's called. But I only realized yesterday that since I wasn't hospitalized, it's actually the longest I've gone without being hospitalized in about two and a half years. So I haven't been hospitalized now for 13 months. So even though I did have that, that episode that I was able to manage at home, I didn't have to go to the hospital. So the episode happened, but I didn't go to the hospital. So it's been 13 months without a hospitalization, which is great. And then when I was down here, I had a little bit mini stuff, so I took the extra Seroquel, but I still have managed to stay out of the hospital. So I think having more and more time out of the hospital of not going back is more important than if, if I have any kind of distress. This is the other half of the smoothie I made this morning. Still good. Yesterday I actually ate a lot of salad and I haven't done that since I got here. With energy, once I feel a bit more clear, not so medicated, I start doing healthy things. So it's not a matter of me saying to myself, oh, I should be eating salad and I should be doing all these healthy things. Once I'm starting to come off these meds, I just automatically start doing the healthy things that I like to do when I'm not feeling so drugged up. So yeah, it's getting into dicey territory with the medication reduction and we'll see what happens. If I don't sleep well tonight, then maybe I should buy a train ticket home because I can't jump on a train for about two weeks because it gets sold out at certain points and I'm going a long way on the train. I could fly, but I don't really love flying. I find it kind of stressful. So, We'll see what happens. Two months from now, I'll be waking up at home for sure. Because if I take the train, it will arrive kind of at midnight on the 25th. 
And then I'll wake up on the 26th. And today's the 26th of May, so two months at the longest to go home. And last night I watched the movie Arrival, and they mentioned that I googled it, and it says, A hypothesis first advanced by Edward Sapir in 1929, and subsequently developed by Benjamin Worf, that the structure of language and native speakers that the structure of a language determines a native speaker's perception and categories that the structure of a language determines a native speaker's perception and categorization of experience. And I was thinking about how I feel like mania going into map consciousness and trans consciousness is putting our brains in contact with a different language and a different worldview. And it's very different from the worldview and language that we are accustomed to, but it's an immersion into that. And it changes the way we perceive and categorize our experiences. And it also tries to change the way that we use language. So right now I feel like language is using the brain and it creates the brain to see in a certain way. But that's not the only way. And it's different even between languages. And I don't know any other languages, so I can't really comment. I know a little bit of Spanish and I was learning and I was fascinated by the different ways they speak and have different sentence structures and everything. So this hypothesis is also called linguistic relativity. And it says the principle of linguistic relativity holds that the structure of language affects its speaker's worldview or cognition. So I want to learn to speak mania and actually have that fully as a worldview and the way that my brain and the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis is also called Worfianism. And I think that we who go into mania can create a word called Manianism. It's just a way of seeing the world. It's a different language. And it could actually be that we can become bilingual. We can speak regular consensus consciousness in terms of the reality we usually interact with. And also learn how to speak this other language. And in the movie, the main character has to communicate with these aliens and they have to kind of learn each other's language. And I won't say anything more because that could spoil the movie, but... I saw some similarities in that when this language of mania takes over the brain, we see in that way. So it's not really apart from the energy and language that that is. It's a different language and it's getting our brains to use language differently and create new language. Which, the important thing too, 
is to see in new ways. So we see in new ways, so we create new language and mania or say different things and have different thoughts. And, and in a way, we're creating those thoughts. They're, a lot of them are new thoughts. And we're thinking, where are these coming from? And sometimes they feel quite genius. But it's like we're creating new memes to, to share. We're creating new language. And, and some of that, if adopted, would change the way we see the world as human beings. And I'm not saying all of it is great. There's a lot of crap in there. There's a lot of garbage. But that's part of the process. The hyper-language creation. So really, mania and these altered states could just be linguistic relativity. The trouble is when we're speaking in different ways to people that know us a certain way, they're going to think that something's wrong. But this language creation process and seeing in new ways process could be something very important. And when one is walking in consensus reality while well, seeing it differently and speaking about it differently, we need people to be understanding and to support us along that journey. And to understand we're creating language and seeing in different ways doesn't mean it's the right way. But what is the right way? And it's definitely not the wrong way. And there could be something to gather from that, not just suppress. If we all walk alongside each other when in those states, yeah, it's just, I can, yeah, I can see what I'm saying. And I don't know if I talked about the blessing of that bad psych ward experience was that I'd had enough. And nothing could be worse than that. So it made it worth the risk of coming off the meds. Because that was really bad. Having extra meds. And where I left off in my notebook, the notes from a while ago. Interestingly enough, I wrote antipsychotics as suppression of new language from perceptions. So that's exactly what I was just saying in a different way. Perceptions, worldviews, ways of seeing and thinking about things, new perceptions create new language. And the realm of map consciousness and trans consciousness and mania, it's all new. It's not necessarily new in space and time though it could be in some ways, but it's new in the sense of being of a different quality. And so every perception is new and feels new. We're not lost in the known thoughts repeating itself, but we're immersed in this unknown. So the medications suppress the evolution of seeing of expanding perceptions and perspectives and creating new language and ways of talking about it. And the motives in those states, if there are any, are to play and to be related, to share, to interact with beauty and with living things. 
And the state of map consciousness is kind of like a state of immense maybe-ness and immense I-don't-know-ness. The current nature of the brain is to entertain a current of thought that moves us away from the present moment. And I wonder if sometimes the mind wanders to a beautiful part of the present moment. But if it's not something that we think we should be thinking about or focusing on, we call it mind wandering. But maybe the mind and the eyes and the brain are looking for something else than that which they are filled with. When the actual eyes are used to see beauty, it grows those areas in the brain. And can we speak in terms of possibility? And what are the terms of possibility? What are the words of possibility? And what are the terms of being able to live in possibility? As in not the words, but the sort of guidelines and rules. And in another video I created the words sea willing possibilities. Apparently I'm really into making videos today when recently I was saying I don't know if I can continue doing this, there's no energy behind it, but it seems to be going today and I don't want to make a long video because it's getting a little bit late and I need to do my coherence breathing and settle down. I really hope that I can sleep without any of those jolts because they kind of freak me out. But we'll see, because today was the first day I took that lipospheric vitamin C. And I had a couple insights when I was editing my last video. Nothing too major, but I was seeing that when that energy comes in, in so-called mania, I've talked about how it's energy to be shared. But we don't always share it and maybe because we're not quite sure how or we don't have people to share it with if we we're living in that state with other people we would probably just be passing that energy back and forth and it would be quite even so when we can't share we don't know how to share it or whatever is inhibiting the process it causes us to accumulate energy and sort of hoard the energy for ourselves, not necessarily intentionally, but in those states, at least in my experience, I remember finding things to actually increase the energy even more. So if I'm in mania and I listen to a song that I really like, it's going to make it even more extreme. It's going to make it augment that experience that doesn't necessarily need any help in that domain. So say I spend half an hour listening to all my favorite songs and get really pumped versus spending half an hour sharing that energy doing something altruistic. And I'm not saying that one is right and one is wrong. It's just one is keeping the energy for oneself in a way and the other is using that energy to create gestures of sharing. And perhaps there could be a balance between both. Charging oneself up and then dissipating the energy in altruism and perhaps we charge ourselves up but we don't necessarily know the skill of 
charging and dissipating that energy and using it for what it's meant for, not necessarily just for ourselves. So when we use the energy to affirm life, then that is going with what the energy wants because we get mad at things that don't affirm life. And I had this sense too when I was listening to the stuff I was talking about that David Bohm said was that in the manic state, in map consciousness or trans consciousness, meaning is being decoupled from words in a way. So usually when we speak to each other, we speak English, our thoughts and our brain are already calculating what that means. And it might not be exactly what it means, but what it means according to what we think it means. If it's something somebody says or something like that, we always have a sense of what that means. And so when meaning starts getting decoupled from words, when we're more in touch with actual meaning, in contact with that, then we create words based on being in touch with that meaning, not just meeting words with words. Meeting the meaning and creating words. And that's why it can seem kind of nonsensical. And not that's why, as in that's the only thing. Of course not, I've said a million things. And how that's also relevant is that the me is just a bunch of words that we've collected and stories that we tell ourselves. So when meaning is decoupling from words, and we're just a bunch of words, we're actually decoupling from our ego self and being in touch with that meaning and giving voice to that instead of perceiving and making meaning based on past meanings, the brain always knowing what things mean. All of a sudden the brain is in the state of not knowing what things mean and seeing that they're not really any things, it's just the moment fluxing and flowing and creating words with that. So the meaning is decoupled from the words and it goes into the moment. The meaning is the moment. And then when we speak as that meaning in the moment, it's a lot different than speaking as what the ego's making meaning of as the moment, which is the past because we're getting all that meaning as our equations from the past. So we speak the meaning of the moment and it's speaking non-locally in a way because we usually speak from this localized center, the ego. But when we're speaking as the moment, we're not sure what our perception has caught onto, what it has become aware of. It could be anything in the whole field and speaking as that relationship with that which we perceive and not as this center of the past experience which can only meet a very small fragment of the totality of the moment. So each moment is such a huge infinity. And when we speak as the ego and perceive as that, we pick out a very narrow bit. Even if we're in direct perception, we can still only pick out a small bit of the infinity of each moment. But it's still infinitely larger than what the ego picks out. And I feel like the current world, we live in the order of words which is the order of the me, but it's just a bunch of words and what we think those words mean and that limits our worldview. And so perception without words creates a different order. And when I say being in connection with the meaning of the moment, it's still subjective. It's not necessarily objective. 
but it's a completely different subjectivity than the ego. And perhaps that's what Dr. David Hawkins talks about when he talks about radical subjectivity. And in the manic mode of language, we have fun with language, we play with language. There's a manic mode of language, there's a manic order of language, and language for a manic worldview. And I was watching some of my music, meaning a friend gifted me G-Force Visualizer and recommended that I watch it on full screen. So I did that just now with some of my songs and it was pretty amazing. It's very intricate and beautiful and so rich and always changing and fluxing and flowing. And then I was thinking, imagine if we saw the universe that way, not just conceptually, but actually as always changing, beautiful, fluxing and flowing. And when I was watching all this richness of design change and go through metamorphosis and change color and I'll show you some, but what I was thinking is that I noticed that my mind couldn't really pick out favorites. It was just so changing that once a favorite came up, it was gone. And between that and 10 seconds later, there might be 10 favorites. And so by the time the 10th one comes along, I've forgotten about the first five. So it was like my brain couldn't cling on to anything because it was so rich and diverse and changing. And in a way, reality must be something like that because it is rich and diverse and changing. But with our thought structures, we've limited it down to something so small, mainly based on what I like and what I don't like. Preference, reward, punishment. So these dualities, when really it's such a richness. And I feel like in map consciousness, we see it as this richness that's ever changing and is so dynamic that we don't even have time to think in terms of like and dislike. And like and dislike is all based on our past memories. So there's no time for even memory to come in to the equation. And Krishnamurti talks a lot about perceiving without memory. So all I could do is just watch and enjoy. And I'll show you a few of my favorite songs, G-Force style.
can share context and dialogue and we can also live it not just sharing context and dialogue but living in that richness because it's a living energy that we all share and that richness of perception has been stolen from us and we're sold these patterns of goals and ideals and programs So I got through a lot today. I still have quite a number of pages to go, but at this rate, I should get through them in a week or so, perhaps. It would be cool to have them done by the time I'm off medication. So the major part of this self-dialogue is wrapped up at the same time. And then I'll have from that time until the 20th, the one-year mark to to go from there. I don't know what's next. It kind of changes from day to day. Thank you for listening to Bipolar Inquiry. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Remember, use your voice, craft your consciousness, embody your potential, enter a quantum paradigm. The Bipolar Inquiry podcast is not meant to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Information in this show is not medical advice. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode.